Hello and welcome to another edition of The Ordinary Elite with me, John McGovern, and my fellow sister advocate, Mike Daly. A special edition today because we're joined by none other than Mark Blythe, a professor in political economy and political science at Bound University in uh, America. My, uh, Mark is an old pal of Mike's from Dundee, and although he lives in the USA, he was born and brought up in Dundee. And so we're looking forward to chewing the fat. My, uh, Mark has published two books and is a well-kent figure in all these matters. So, uh, Mark, I would say uh, welcome to The Ordinary Elite, uh, a most impressive resume, if I may say so, to use an Americanism that's not often used over here. And can I just ask you quickly, given you were born and bred in uh, Dundee, Mark, uh, do you still read the Bruins and Urwilly? I don't think anyone ever stops reading the Bruins and Urwilly. <laughs> The, the one I don't know if you ever came across this, but in the 1970s, there was a dirty Urwilly that was published yeah, yeah. as a kind of Samet's dad's cartoon yeah. Yeah. of the Bruins and all that doing unspeakable things to each other. And uh, apparently the rumour was it was done by the Polis. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that, Mark. Brilliant. <clears throat> um, well, welcome, Mark, to the show. And uh, we're looking forward to just chewing the fat over various issues and uh, and uh, the financial situation at the moment, and uh, putting that into hopefully towards the end of the show, a, a Scottish context. Sure, go for it. What do you want to talk about? Well, can I kick off then, Mark? And I think one of the big things, and particularly today, I think in in the UK, but it's it's big all over uh, the world, I guess, but particularly in uh, the US as well. And that is inflation. It's kind of been out of control. It was in double figures in the UK. It's now seven, I think, eight point seven percent in the UK. I think that compares to 4% in the States. I think it's about 6% in Germany. Um, now, we've also got interest rates on the way up. Um, I kind of think the Bank of England, MPC, the Monetary Policy Committee, has just been following the Fed in the States, to be honest. They just Everybody of... just follows the Fed, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically about one to two months behind. But what's interesting today is the Bank of England put the, the base rate up by half a percent. Now, that's the 13th rise in about 18 months, so it's now 5%. Which is kind of the same, I think, as the Fed, isn't it? Which is mm -hmm. five, more or less, I five, five point two five, five point five. Yep. So, but what, what's the, what's even more interesting than that is all the analysts are saying. Look, uh, and certainly I was listening to the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey. It looks like they may keep those rates going up higher in the UK, so they mm -hmm. may go up another another you know uh, percent, and we might get to six by the end of the year. So I think the question is, what's going on with inflation, Mark? And does anybody believe that the Bank of England's monetary policy is actually going to work? Uh, let's do the second one first. Um, they might believe it, but nobody else does. Uh, what's going on with it is that we fundamentally misunderstand what this is because we're obsessed with a kind of Milton Friedman-esque monetarist version of inflation, where it's all too much money chasing too few goods. Now, let me give an example of this, right? In the US, a lot of the blame, at least two years ago, when it all started to kick off, was the stimulus checks. We gave all these stimulus checks out, we've overstimulated the economy, and that's why we got inflation, right? All right. If you look into a thing called the Federal Reserve's Survey of Consumer Finances for 2021, you'll find out that there were the two single largest reductions in credit card debt in recorded history. Oddly enough, two or three months after you got the stimulus checks. Yeah. So what people did was they paid, paid down their credit card balances. That, that's where the stimulus money went. How that is leading to natural gas prices shooting through the roof in, in England is completely mysterious. So the local story of money probably isn't true. So what is? It's actually very much like the 1970s because we actually misunderstand that as well. 
The story of the 1970s was too much money chasing too few goods, and eventually Paul Volcker, the Federal Reserve Chair at that time, jacks up interest to 16%, causes a huge recession, and then by 1984, we're back in its morning in America. What actually happened, if you look into it, was a series of supply shocks. There were failed harvests in the Soviet Union and America that pushed up wheat prices. There were two oil shocks, 74 and 79, that quadrupled the price of oil, which were a much bigger input into industrial economies at that point. You had a lot of people, particularly minorities and women, joined in the US labor market in the 1960s, but you had so many people involved in Vietnam that you still had over full employment. Mm. So all of those things together pushed up prices. Now, each of them were a supply shock that lasted several years and eventually it disappeared. Did Volcker need to jack up interest rates that much? Well, everyone tells him tells you he did, but I don't think he did. Now, jump forward to the moment. What have we got? We have a huge pandemic supply shock, which we really still don't understand the depth of because of the complexity of global supply chains coming out of COVID. Then you've got the biggest single cause of inflation, which is the energy supply shock. Yeah. And those are two big supply side shocks, right? Then you've got other things that make it complex, like Brexit. So why has Brexit got an inflation story? There's a good story today that I read, a guy from Sky News put this one together. It's about why cucumbers cost so, much damn, cost so damn much. And the answer is simple, because Britain used to grow loads of its own cucumbers, except they were all in heated greenhouses. Yep. Once you push the cost of heating up, you shut down all the greenhouses, and now you have to basically import them. The problem is you're importing them from Spain. Spain's running out of water, and you've also got post-Brexit supply chains. So guess what? Your cucumbers cost twice as much, and you can't get tomatoes. Now, what does any of that have to do with money? Nothing. These are all supply shocks. Yep. Supply shocks dissipate over time. This will dissipate over time. Britain's particularly vulnerable because it imports two-thirds of its food. And also because its currency has weakened from where it was historically, so it costs more to do those inputs. But that's what's really driving inflation. Now, what can the Bank of England do about that? Bugger all, really. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I did actually read that uh, article um, that you quoted, Mark, on cucumbers. And but at first I thought it was a spoof, and then I thought, my, my goodness, this is genius. Yeah, it, no, it's a totally, it's a really great insight. It's a yeah. really good insight of explaining what the actual dynamics of all this stuff is. Yeah, it's incredible. And so, no, that's, a, that's, an in, that's, I mean, that's an insightful analysis from you because effectively what you're saying is, in a nutshell, <clears throat> yeah, this has happened before, as often, no. I mean, almost nothing's never happened before. <laughs> um, happened in the 70s, supply shocks. Um, and so what we're currently doing with the Bank of England and indeed, uh, no doubt, the Fed, is we're hiking up interest rates, and that's causing pain. And, and, and I wonder, you, you could even argue that it's like a kind of a Faustian bargain, isn't it? You're hiking interest rates up with the spiritual kind of you know uh, goal of trying to cure inflation. Um, now, the problem with that, surely, is we've now got this mortgage time bomb in the UK. Yeah, particularly in the Britain, exactly, with the reset of short-term rates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so... <clears throat> So between now and the end of next year, 2.4 million people are coming off fixed rate deals. Now, <clears throat> those fixed rate deals were mostly five-year deals. It's about 85% um, mm -hmm. people take out five-year deals. So they would have had, you know, if you go back to when they took them out, <clears throat> they might have had something in the range of about half a percent. You know what I mean? Because remember, the, the base in the UK was at 0 0.1 for a long Aye. time. So they're going from a half a percent <clears throat> yep. to potentially seven or even eight, depends what they can get. Mm -hmm. um, that's effectively going to be some people waking up in, in the morning that this happens and realising the mortgage has effectively doubled or trebled. Um, right. So the question This is when you get the phenomenon you had in 1986 where people would just basically put the keys back in the mail and send it to the mortgager. 
Yeah. So I mean, because there's nothing else to do. I, I mean, and I, I mean, this is a huge worry in the UK, and obviously all the politicians are talking about it. Nobody's really got much of a solution. It's interesting. Labour came out today saying, um, "Well, we've got a five-point plan," which is basically saying that the banks can fix it. Uh, it's like, mm. <clears throat> so I mean, effectively, what they're doing is they said, "Oh, you can extend your term. You can." Um, an interest-only period for a set period of time. I mean, basically, it's kicking. Yeah, it's it down. called it's called extend and pretend. Yeah, kick it down. It's kicking the can down. Kick the, the can down the road. Yeah, and at the end of the day, oddly enough, who pays? Well, it's the punter. It's the punter that pays for all of this. Of right? So, I suppose my sort of question to you on this, Mark, is that what are we doing? I mean, is <laughs> <laughs> how did that happen? Right. Yeah, it's, like, it's kind of like well, I mean, we're well, basically... Mike, 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 Mike. Let, let's do it this way. Let's 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 link it to the inflation story, right? Go back to 1997 when Brown and Blair give operational independence to the Bank of England. What does that mean? It meant that we were living in this period where everything seemed to be going fine with markets. There were no big shocks and everything was on our right. We were globalising things and we hadn't yet reaped the whirlwind of basically deindustrialization fully. So you thought it was all right to ship jobs all around the world and wipe out local communities, etc. So anyway, it was all good. And the way that you did this is you liberalised the banking sector. And you had this tsunami of credit that basically everybody was able to tap into. And if you lived in the areas of the economy that grew, which were essentially Scotland, a wee bit of Manchester and all of Greater London, and you bought property, this was the most the best investment you could do over a 20-year period. And the really smart people levered up and remortgaged and used the cash that they took out to buy another property, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and, you know, made a killing out of it. Now, the problem was what we did was we also stopped building houses for normal people. Yeah. The net stock of housing in Britain has actually declined over time. People are puzzled by this because they're like, but there's cranes everywhere. It's like, yeah, but we also don't live in those mining villages anymore. They're all shut down, right? Mm -hmm. There isn't enough housing where you need it. So the confluence of these two factors, a decline in supply and, and a push of available credit that gets cheaper and cheaper all the time, is to create a massive leverage in the housing market and to turn the housing market into the main investment vehicle for millions of Brits. Yeah. Now, once you've once you've done that, if interest rates start to go up, you know you don't really have a good solution to this. The solution to this is liquidation, right? And it's really going to hurt. So I think there's, there's you know if there's an upside to this, it could kill the Tories for a generation. Well, that is an upside. Um, what I'm, what I'm thinking, Mark, is how bad do you see it getting? I mean, a real practical example of the situation we're in is my uh, niece who's uh, just about to get married and her mortgage has gone up. The, the, the deal she was on ended and her mortgage has gone up from something like £285 a month to £915 a month. Wow. Good God. And... and, and I, I just wonder how sustainable that is. This is now, we've not seen, we've not reached the worst of this yet because all these fixed rate deals that were on offer, most of them, I think, are still running and have still to come to an end. And when they come to an end, that is an example of what is going on here. And that, incidentally, is at a rate uh, not affected by today's, you know, the latest hike. And what I would be interested in hearing from you, Mark, is, uh, you know, it's a simple question, but it might be difficult to answer. How bad do you think it's going to get? I think it's going to get very bad for the reasons you've just outlined. I mean, the other thing that went along with the tsunami of credit from the 1980s onwards was declining real wages, right? Particularly over the past 20 years, the bottom 60% of the British income distribution really hasn't seen any wage growth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do you keep going when prices are rising and costs are going up? You just borrow more. Mm 
So you've already got credit card debt, consumer debt, you've got all sorts of debt apart from your mortgage debt. So when your mortgage debt goes through the roof and there's no buyers on the other side to take up to take the houses, that's a really bad situation because you've got a massive liquidity problem, right? You can't get rid of it and it's basically bankrupting you. And on the other side, you can't sell it because nobody's willing to buy at these rates and at these costs. And the only way that you, you move the needle on that is if you massively increase supply, but you can't do that over the short term. So, you know, you're stuck. I mean, this has basically been 30 years in the making, 40 years in the making. And we've had a little hint of this when it happened in 1986, if you go back and look at that after the Lawson boom. But this is much more wide scale. It's also, incidentally, why Americans have 30-year fixed mortgages so that you just don't have this problem. But to yeah. do that, you then have to have kind of like national guarantees of the mortgage market, which is why we have these weird institutions, Fannie and Freddie and all the rest of it. But, you know, there are ways around it, but usually reform of housing markets in any serious way comes when there's a crisis. So, yeah. you know, this is this is the, maybe the price to pay to actually get this into, into a better state. And one thing, I was, I was taught a Labour Party event at the House of Commons just a wee while ago. And one of the things that I was banging on about was if you want to invest in, you know, the public balance sheet and public infrastructure, if you want to do something that really helps decarbonization, if you want to build skills and do jobs, just focus on housing. You haven't built any for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And every building in the country, pardon my French, is shite from a carbon perspective. Yeah. So just yeah. like do that, and, and then you're yeah. building real assets. Those assets exactly. don't increase your net debt position because they earn income on the asset, yeah. right? This is totally a no-brainer. I mean, I really hope that yeah. Labour thinks this through and picks this yeah. up. Yeah, I mean, they're always going to be there. It's You're almost investing in some kind of form of infrastructure. So even, it, if, exactly. even, even if it falls in value, it's going to be there, you know, in the long run. But what is the lesson that we've had, right? These things hardly ever fall in value. Exactly. You can have valuation crises, you can have yeah. liquidity problems because yeah. of stupid mortgage contracts, yeah. but the underlying value doesn't yeah. go down that much. Yeah. So it's a no-brainer to build it. Yeah. Plus and people I need it. You want, to make a, you want to make a difference in the lives of ordinary people in the United Kingdom? How about decent housing? Because even the university graduates in London are now paying 50% of the income in some cases just to get a shitty apartment rental yeah. that's totally unsustainable yeah. yeah i think i think politically the, the big kind of issue is that the politicians pretty much across the board aren't getting it they're not understanding how bad this is i uh, think that's right and uh, it really is you know which is why i asked what i asked it really is in my view kind of Worrying. Well, it's, also a, it's a generational thing as well. Exactly, I mean, exactly as you exactly. point out, it's your niece, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we're, do, what we're doing, and this is the classic austerity play by governments, right? They always say that we can't indebt the next generation. So what we'll do is we'll cut spending now. By cutting spending and investment now, you'll leave the economy smaller and poorer with more debt in the long yeah. run for them yeah. to inherit. Exactly. And this is just another version of that. It's like, yeah. because we didn't invest in building any houses, now you're stuffed. Yeah, so, so that being so... Mark, maybe I'm jumping ahead of, of, of things here, but, but I would be interested, uh, you know, that, that we're just creating problems for future generations. And this is a generational thing because my generation, you know, uh, when I was that age, didn't have these issues. We just didn't have these issues. Right. And we don't have them now. Or we, you know, a lot of us don't have them now, uh, but the younger generation do. And I'm wondering if, if particularly maybe moving along to the kind of 
uh, economic issues and monetary issues that might, you know, affect independence or, or, or don't seem to uh, be prominent in the debate are not prominent enough, in my opinion, because mm-hmm. they're probably the most important issues for me. That's a kind of separate kind of angle on independence because the culture and the social social issues are not an issue for me, but the economic issues are. And I want to just introduce, given what you've said about the the kind of uh, generational thing, the idea of modern monetary theory. And I'm wondering where you are on that and how you think, um, maybe you can explain it for some of the folk listening and how you think, if at all, it could work in uh, moving towards a kind of break away from the UK economy and a more independent structure. Um, so I like to regard myself as the Fox Mulder of MMT, for those who remember the X-Files. Remember he always had a poster that said, I want to believe? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, here's what here's why I don't. It's called the open economy. So, if you have a completely closed economy or a very large economy, and everybody banks in your currency as the savings asset, like the U.S. dollar, or if you have extensive capital control, so you can control money going out of the country, like China does, you can, in principle, run a type of MMT economy. In other words, you can print. You don't really have to worry about taxes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Your bond market becomes secondary because it's really the government that's spending it, etc. Right? You use taxes to balance the books or adjust to inflation, right? And that all kind of makes sense. Now, you are Scotland. Scotland is not a small open economy in Northern Europe. That's pish that people talk. You're actually a very small part of a mid-sized free trade zone called the United Kingdom. And you've got tons and tons of micro-businesses and very, very few, if any, multinationals with any kind of international footprint. So if you go independent, could you do it? Yes, over a 20-year period, if you were to outright and the neighbours played well, yeah. But let's imagine that you do it quickly. You get yourself a currency. How much is it worth? You're going to end up what all currencies do. You peg to the Bank of England. So you're just basically going to have a Scottish pound. If you decide to then do MMT at that point, what if people wrongly perhaps think, oh, the government's spending all this money on infrastructure and they're just running the printing presses. I don't like that. I think I'll swap out the Scottish pound. You're going to put up capital controls? Do you, think you could run, do you think you could run MMT when you're shadowing Sterling? No. No. Because I just that, don't that, think it what No, here, here, let me finish. This is why it doesn't sorry, work, okay, right? No. At the end of the day, you're going to have to pay for imports because you don't make enough stuff. You're never going to make a car. You don't do your own pharma. You don't do your own computers. Mm. So how do you earn that? You then need to have a positive export balance. <clears throat> to have a positive export balance, you need to have a stable currency. If you start running the printing presses in an open economy, all of your savers would rather hold pounds. You will have capital flight to England. And your companies will start to worry about the exchange rate because it's going to start going down because people are going to anticipate future inflation. When that happens, your exchange rate of your new pound goes down and your imports cause more and you get the inflation. Then you have to jack up interest rates and that stops MMT in its tracks. You can't do it in an open economy unless you're willing to put in capital controls. If you're going to do independence for Scotland over a five-year period and start with capital controls, you might as well just bonfire the national economy. That's the hard reality of it. I've looked at this seven ways to Sunday, and I can't find a way out of that dilemma. I wish I could, but I can't. Okay. Can, can I take? I mean, John's point in terms of the whole kind of independence debate. Um, just take it forward and maybe link it into Brexit, Mark, because I, I I wonder whether I mean nobody's really talked very much about. Well, Bre- Brexit has been a basket case for the UK in terms of trade. It's created friction. It's created barriers. I, right. I mean, I'm convinced if you think about why we've got, you know, almost 4% more inflation than, say, the US, 
I, I mean, I'm convinced that Brexit plays a factor in all of this, right? Yes, it plays a factor. It complicates yeah. your supply chains, absolutely. Yeah, and and so it you know it 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 doesn't help. It makes things more expensive ultimately. I don't know if you've been following the deposit return scheme kind of um, scandal in Scotland. This is the idea of um, the idea of putting twenty pence on every plastic um, can, bottle, uh, mm-hmm. glass thing, whatever. Um, and you would then obviously have to take that back to the shop to get your 20 right. pence deposit back. Anyway, the whole thing collapsed, and I won't bore you with the details, but suffice it to say, the UK government were going to allow an internal market exemption, but they wanted glass to be out with the scheme for, for, for the next year and a bit or something, right? And the Scottish government said no. And and the reason, and that, that caused huge problems because, for example, tenants came in and said, you know, the, the, the brewer, they said, well, um, that's going to cause a, a massive disadvantage because we sell a lot of cans of beer, right? <clears throat> and if if um, if glass becomes cheaper because we've got to put twenty pence in every tin, then we got a problem, right? So right. I'm, the reason I mention that is it, does that not just kind of go to show you that when we're talking about independence, do we not also now have to factor in we've learned a lot of lessons from Brexit just in terms of the technical. <laughs> Yeah, Mike, I'd put I'd put it in an even stronger mode than that. Look, you know, my support for independence has never been uh, a nationalist one. It's a practical one. It came from the fact that when Boris Johnson was elected again in 19, with an increased majority, and he took the north of England, I thought Scotland's a lifeboat. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is, this is not my first choice, but if this is the way it's trending, I want to be a positive help in that regard, and that's why I got sort of involved in the debate to the extent that I did. Yeah. Um, and then the hard reality of it is you start thinking about it systematically, and I can make a case for Scotland being independent. I can even tell you a roadmap how to get there. But the notion that you're going to do it in a couple of electoral cycles, I just flatly don't see how you do that. And the notion that it's not going to hurt, just stop there. Because what you're doing is Brexit within Britain. Now, if you start from the point of view that Brexit was a bad idea and look at the damage it's done, that's 30 years of integration, 40 years. But try 330. Yeah. Right? So there's just no way around that. So you take these two things. Number one, the simple cost of separation. When you are a periphery part of a middle-sized free trade zone, where 60% of your trade goes to England, not to the rest of the world. All the stuff the Scottish government produces on this is extremely skewed in how they present this, right? Most of your trades with England will likely remain so. You've got a huge number of micro-enterprises, right? They don't employ many people. They don't, are not capital-intensive, right? They're, they're very susceptible to price shocks. And you go independent, have your own currency, and then suddenly you're a small open economy with a volatile currency and a big budget deficit. You're not going to be able to do MMT. That's just no. And if you do, it'll become completely self-defeating because it'll just get inflation through the import channel. So again, you know, I look at it now and go, all right, if that's the case. What's happening? Well, it seems to be that the the national party is self-immolating as we speak. Uh, it seems that uh, that support for independence never really tracks above forty percent. You're going to have to get to at least sixty percent to make this one stick, right? Yeah. So now we're in a different world. We're one in which the Tories might be out, and if we're lucky, they might be out for a generation. Mm-hmm. It's not the Labour Party that I would necessarily, you know, dream of, but it's a hell of a lot better than the alternatives. And that's the front that we need to focus on, and that's basically the battle that we need to fight at the moment. I think everything else is extraneous. A final point I'd make is that, you know, if you think about what's been happening globally, the sort of the return of geopolitics, yep. like China and America shaping up into what could be a brutal conflict, Ukraine, Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Is the answer at this point really to be we and small? 
I mean, why is it that Sweden's joining NATO? Why is Finland doing the same? Why is Ireland reconsidering neutrality? You know, the notion that we can sort of like cut ourselves off and have a perfectly sort of lefty paradise, just not on. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'll bring in John, uh, Mark. I mean, but just to sort of say that's that's a really, I mean, those types of observations that you've made, you don't really get in Scotland, John, do you? Um, no, there's no. I kind of touched on it earlier. My, uh, I voted no in 2014, but it was because of the lack of any economic reality or economic right. progress by prognosis that addressed the issues that we're talking about. Because culturally, socially, it's kind of in the bag for me. You know, right? Uh, even politically, it's probably in the bag for me. But, but it's and this, on that one, I would agree, John, because when you're living in a regime where you vote constantly against the governing party and you keep getting the other governing party, right? Yeah. That's a huge democratic yeah. deficit yeah. issue. I'm totally with you on that. Yeah. So, so, uh, but I'm in, I'm intrigued, Mark. If I if I can ask you something, I I, I was reading a an interview you gave to the National uh, Paper in Scotland, and uh, I hope you don't mind me just uh, giving you a, a, a quote back of what you said, which was Scotland suffers from being attached to a broken debt and consumption-driven national mm -hmm. growth model called the UK that teeters on the brink of collapse. Some 35% of UK GDP is generated in London. I think that was last August. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it looks as if the Tories are going to, you know, get booted out, uh, you know, if, if not this year, early next year. And I'm wondering... Uh, what your view would be, given given the, the mess that the, the kind of nationalist cause is in Scotland, I wonder what your view would be that in the event of a Labour government, how far do you think, you know, within the one or two election cycles, the UK can, can come back from that, that, you know, from teetering on that brink of collapse economically? So it real, for two different societies, for two different reasons, the next elections over the next two years are going to be the most important elections in their lifetime. So the first one is whether Trump comes back and MAGA Republicans come in, right? That's hugely important for lots of reasons we can talk about. But it's also this election. So it really looks like Labour's going to win. But here's the problem. Ever since the financial crisis, left-wing, centre-left governments in Europe have been kowtowed by the notion that they spent too much money. Now, in, in the British case, I find this hysterical, right? Because what, watch this, right? The barber boom and bust in 72, the loss and boom and bust in 86, the debacle of the exchange rate mechanism with major, right? And then uh, Cameron's hit job on the economy, followed by truss. I mean, I can put five economic disasters on the Tories, yes, yes, yet for some reason Labour yes. think Labour think they have to be super yes. credible. Yeah. Which now that ties yeah. them in a box because yeah. what it means is I promise not to spend any money, yeah. even though I'll make all these promises to do really yeah. good things. Yeah. Now I think there's a way out of that box. I understand why they're in it and why they think they need to do that, and I, and I think that they they understand it too and they can move. There's no doubt that what's going to happen over the next five years is going to be tough. There's going to be a big reset. And a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money. A lot of credit's going to evaporate, etc. Is that going to bring back the Tories? Not necessarily. I think the Labour's probably got two cycles on it because this is going to get so deep. If they're able to stabilise after four to five years and actually say things are improving, they get that second term. If in that second term they're able to do the earlier stuff that we were talking about, investing in housing, investing in skills, which doesn't necessarily mean just more university places, right? You need HVAC engineers, you need sparkies, you need plumbers, right? People who know how to do shit, right? 
once you are able to invest in that, you can grow the public balance sheet with assets, right? And that actually reduces debt. If you can make a compelling set of cases as to how you're going to do this, I think people get on board with that. And I think it's that's a pretty good chance of, of, of working. Mm -hmm. F1, and this is something I've said to the people in the Labour Party, if you spend five years fretting about the budget, like like some kind of like the Swabian housewife in Germany, right, in mm -hmm. Angela Merkel's mind, mm -hmm. if you do that and nothing changes in the lives of ordinary Brits, the Scots are off. Yeah. Right? That's that's how I think this yeah. plays out. Yeah, I completely agree. I think if Labour, for want of a better way of putting it, make a complete hash of this, uh, then I think you're right. I, th I, I think that people just give up, basically. Mm -hmm. You know? But I think that they've got, they know that, right? I mean, I've spoken to people, you know, in, in the party and they're well aware of this. They mm -hmm. understand that they've got a bind. They understand that they've, in a sense, put themselves in a bind mm -hmm. and they need to find a way out of it so that they mm -hmm. can actually do that. But the good thing is they're at least aware of it. I mean, if you think about the alternative, this was something that somebody in the Labour Party said to me about levelling up and Boris's idea levelling up. He says, level, we've got this thing called securonomics, right? Basically an economy that builds security for ordinary people. And they had levelling up, and that was a Tory version, if you will. But how come nothing happened? Was it because they didn't really care, they didn't want to do it? Maybe, but a large part of it was there was literally nobody in the party that knows how to do anything like that. Because they've spent 40 yeah. years denigrating and kneecapping yeah. the state. Now yeah. you want this, the state to turn around and fix stuff. Yeah. That's not what you guys do. It's a, it's a brilliant point. Uh, there was a professor at Stirling University, whose name escapes me, who gave a podcast recently, and he, 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 it was an, ex, an extrapolation of that point. He basically said public services in Scotland are in such a mess, we can't build a boat, you know, we can't build a, 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 yeah. a, road, a road properly, because there, there is actually no one left in the public mm. sector that with the experience of doing that. Because the, the right, private, exactly, because you underfund it. So what do they do? Go somewhere else. Right. Yeah. The private sector has grown in the last generation to the extent that it's much more attractive than the public sector, and there's just been a talent drain in the public sector. And it's the politicians are getting the blame, but it's, in actual fact, there are no technocrats, not enough technocrats left in government to, to you know to build the infrastructure that we're talking about. It's right, and you know, and this is really problematic when it comes to decarbonisation, the green yeah, transition, etc. Because at a minimum, you're not relying on private markets to do most of that, because there's no profit case for two thirds of the stuff that you need to do. So that means you need to build up state capacity. Well, you know, if the whole generation of people that would have went into the top tier of the British civil service are now in McKinsey uh, uh, in consulting okay. or have gone to Goldman Sachs, right? You yeah. know, how do you yeah. fill that gap? Yeah. That's yeah. that's a problem yeah. that everybody yeah. needs to focus on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, this might sound like heresy, Mark, but I mean, there's, all, there's almost an argument for saying, um, you know, looking at things that have happened in Scotland in terms of, you know, various various interventions that have just been disasters. I mean, John's alluded to ferries, but there's a number of different big projects that have literally cost billions. You can say the same in the UK. Um, it's almost like we've had the last kind of, I don't know, five, 10 years of things that have happened that, that if, you, if you actually just didn't do anything, <laughs> if you just didn't do anything, just left things, probably would have turned out better. I mean, I, I know that's a heresy, right? But, but I mean, you have to sometimes <laughs> pinch yourself and think, is it that bad? But but I suppose listening to what you've said, I'm just thinking of takeaways as we're coming near to the end of our sort of half an hour or so. But but I I I really love your idea about um housing. Um and I think the point you're making about Labour's really got a kind of if I want to if I want to hang hang on to Scotland, this is the last chance, really, you know, because you, yeah. you you might have a window of 10 years, but that might be it forever. Mm -hmm. 
And you need to do some transformational stuff. I mean, if you think back to Glasgow's John Wheatley, who was the housing minister back in the what, 1920s, John, I think, um, he built millions of houses across the UK. It transformed people's life. Yeah, uh, this, it, is, this is exactly the case that I, I made as well. I mean, one of the reasons the Harold Macmillan won in 59 is because the Tories built 350,000 council houses a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. and they were the, they were the good ones. They were the ones in um, oh, what's the name of the? There's a great estate in Glasgow. It's not the Drum Chapel. It's the it's the um, Knights Knightswood 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 Knightswood. I mean, yeah. fantastic houses, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you know, people think council houses and they're like, oh, it's all the worst. It's yeah. like Drum Chapel and the Gorbals. Like, no, there were some fantastic estates yeah. built all over the country. Yeah. Then the Tories sold the whole bloody law of them off. Nice. <laughs> Yeah. So if we if we just try and end this on a positive note, because obviously we've we've went through some some pretty you know, <laughs> a lot of gloom. A lot of gloom. Welcome to another episode of Doom and Gloom with the Shite Brothers. <laughs> and you've also sort of said, I it's actually going to get worse, by the way. But um, I'm, like, I'm going off. I'm going off to the door, Willie. Cheer, cheer me up. I will make sure exactly. you, read, you read you read the right one that Mark was referring to. But anyway, um, I, I, I just I just think in terms of in terms of being positive, here's the chance, all right? We do have a chance. You know, the the you know, and indeed whoever takes power in Scotland as well. I mean, there could be mm-hmm. there could be all sorts of possibilities for more devolved powers. I mean, I mean, who knows? But the thing is, what you're talking about is we can transform things for a generation. We could do stuff in terms of the NHS. These are things that could really make a huge difference. And if you crack that, um, it could, yep. it, you know, you you could that could be the it's a holy. Grail. Things can't look. Things can be fixed, right? And you know, and you know, if you take the long run story on this one, I mean, as a society, as a country, as as a as a globe, we've never been richer. There's an amazing essay in uh, Foreign Affairs uh, this uh, this episode, uh, which is not behind a paywall, so you can go get it by Branko Milanovic, which is fabulous. Which is about yes, there's been a large increase. In inequality in within countries, but between countries, it's basically collapsing, and it doesn't take much in the way of fancy calculations to see that basically the whole center of gravity of growth in the world is shifting away from old Western Europe and the United States towards yeah. Asia, South Asia, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, younger populations, all that sort of stuff. In only twenty years, like the poorest people in America will actually be poorer than the middle classes of some Asian countries. So you know, there's always progress. There's there's always hope. It's just that, you know, for us that sat on the top of the cake for a very, very long time, there's a long way to slide down. Now, we don't always have to slide all the way off the cake. That's a weird metaphor, but stay with it, right? <laughs> you, you, you can at some point arrest the damage, right, and climb back up. Labour, I think, has a tremendous opportunity to do so. I think that the sort of the Corbyn period for them was actually kind of cathartic and therapeutic in the sense that it got rid of the sort of just like Blair clone technocrats who were pretty awful. And then you got the lefties and they pushed the party in a way that ultimately was unsustainable, but nonetheless has brought them back to a position now where they're, no, they're not afraid of their own shadow anymore. And if they can just sort of like work out sort of a, a language, and it really is a language of investment rather than spending, etc., and sort of bring the public along with that, I think they can do a lot. And a lot of that is like what we talked about, as John has mentioned, is about rebuilding the capacity of the state, rebuilding knowledge, and that's about skills. And, and you know, heresy for me to say it because I'm a university teacher, but it's not about everybody going to university and getting a degree. It's really not. It, it could become a great. This could be a, a one of the great governments. This this Labour government. Yes, it really could. It has that the, opportunity. The, exactly. The bar is so low. So yeah. low. Uh, the, the mess that the country is in. 
I, I like to, I like to put it this way: when Cameron and Osborne in two thousand and ten started banging on about broken Britain, I didn't realise it was a long term policy objective. Uh, but the two of them, the two of them, should run courses in poverty creation. They're masters at it. They're absolute masters. They are absolutely. And also, sort of like never changing your mind, no matter how much evidence is presented that you're royally screwed up, right? No, no, it was the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Uh, Well, anyway, hopefully, we've seen the last of them. Absolutely. Well, look, Mark, we've come to the end of our our show. So um, thanks so much for for taking the time to give us your insights. And uh, I think think you've given us a lot to think about. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, I'm. Mark. I'm sure that my com- I'm sure that my commentary is on how you can't do MMT in a small open economy is going to really piss some people off. But unfortunately, it's what I think. So yeah, there well, you go. They, they can slide off yeah. the cake if they want. They are sliding right <laughs> off the cake. Comment right off, com- right off the current bun. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, Brilliant. Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. All the best. It's been a pleasure. Talk to you soon, lads. Bye. Bye. Bye.